it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Saturday Mornings with Joy Keith. We had a little technical thing there. <laughs> Sorry about that, but this is Joy. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Also, email me. I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at SaturdaysWithJoyKeys at Hotmail.com. And you can now listen to the show on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, iTunes, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. Well, this morning, I am delving deep into an issue that millions and millions of people are dealing with, not only in the United States, I'll say. I'll say across a, a diaspora, people are dealing with this issue of how to be black Really, it's a question about how to be black and survive, and survive at high levels, high echelons, I guess, in different industries, from fashion to engineering, um, music, uh, sports, all these different arenas. How do you, you know, get through the maze, come out fairly unscathed? How do you triumph through all this trauma that you might experience, even from young, being in your neighborhood, and then all the way to an adult and becoming a parent. How do you survive? Well, there's this young man, Chad Sanders. He decided to write a book about it. He expresses his experiences in the book, and he interviewed more than 300 people to get their experiences and find out how did they survive and what did they use um, to their advantage that end up being their black magic. What was their black magic? And, and each of them have a little story to tell. Good morning, Chad Sanders. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for waking up on Saturday. A lot of people sleep in, you know, go get the late brunch. I appreciate you being on the call this morning. Of course, um, yeah. I'll, I'll get my brunch afterwards. <laughs> get your brunch. What kind of brunch? Let me ask you that. What do you eat for brunch? Are you like French toast? Are you pancakes? Are you a, a omelet guy? What's your deal? I'm a pancakes person. I I. If I have pancakes in front of me, I'll eat them all. doesn't matter how many there are. Now, what kind of pancakes? Do they got fruit in them, they got chocolate chips, or they're plain? Uh, if there's chocolate chips available, I'll go for that. Most places don't do that, though, so I'll just go for plain. I'm, I'm not, I don't love fruit on my pancakes. Okay, okay. Straight pancakes. Uh, nice. Well, we got that out of the way yeah. now. So if you ever go to Chad's house, <laughs> bring the mix, <laughs> um, and, and, and you'll be ready to eat. <laughs> So, Chad, let's start with you. Um, tell us just a brief bit about the book, maybe some stuff I missed in the intro there. Tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, so Black Magic uh, is a book that I wrote because I wanted to learn how black people could make it in business. Um, and I don't mean just how they could, you know, 
be promoted from level one to level two at a big corporation or, you know, maybe make it to an associate level at a law firm or a clerk level. Um, I wanted to learn how, how we could make it at the highest levels, how we could uh, build equity, how we could make it onto boards, how we could, uh, it, depending on your field, get to the very, very top of whatever it is that you're doing. And I wanted to learn how to do that specifically um, while, while black, which brings a number of challenges of its own. Um, and so to explore that idea, I went and spoke to over 200 black people who I admired and looked up to across industries from sciences, academia, media, entertainment, uh, technology, venture capital, business, consulting. And I asked them tough questions about how they grew up, how they came to understand their blackness, how racism affected their professional journeys, and what they learned along the way that allowed them to navigate through those professional journeys. And what came out on the other end was this book, uh, a how-to guide of sorts, um, that specifically owns in on what you learn along the way as a black person in this country that you can use to your advantage in your given field. So let's start um, one of the things that are discussed in the book uh, frequently, many of the interviewees, microaggressions. Talk to the audience about what is a microaggression? What, it is, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it taste like? Yeah, so I, I don't know what the sort of sociological definition is, but as I understand it, microaggressions are all the subtle, small ways that people uh, express racism or sexism or classism, but in this case, racism, um, to oppress someone else. And I would say a, a perfect example of this is that one of the scientists who is interviewed in the book talks about her journey coming up at MIT and Stanford as a young scientist in the 70s and 80s. And she was uh, one of the very few black women and one of the few black students altogether. And professors and students alike found different ways to make her feel small, uh, make her feel like a sexual object from, you know, one student would ask her out on a date every time he ran into her, saw her at class after she had already said that she wasn't interested. Uh, there was mm -hmm. a professor who would look the other way in the hallway when she was walking by to avoid having to say hi to her or acknowledging her existence. Um, there were students who would, you know, talk over and around her and, and not invite her into group studies, not tell her where the library was, you know, just uh, little ways that are not, they're not so confrontational um, and they don't really give you a, a true opportunity to defend yourself uh, or embrace a conflict, um, but they still subjugate you nevertheless. So that's, that's what microaggressions are to my understanding. I think it's the pattern of behavior. That's always the issue. I think the word pattern comes up. It's a pattern. It's, it's something that somebody in um, New Zealand would recognize because it's happened over and over, these same types of behaviors, um, these subtle behaviors. I think that was Dr. Espy you were talking about, correct? Um, yeah, Dr. Carol Espy Wilson. 
Mm-hmm. And she, um, the algorithm, is this the one she, they hid the algorithm from her, the algorithm library? They hit, yeah, they, they, they would hide certain um, study code algorithms, things that she was supposed to know as she pursued her engineering degree so that she couldn't study at the level that they did. And then eventually one of her professors told her that she should go somewhere else for her schooling. Mm, yeah. So, so that's just, you know, a lot of pressure. The other thing that's discussed is racial duality, you know, code switching, um, tell the audience a little bit about what you learned about racial duality and what that meant and how it impacted the people you interviewed. Yeah, so many of the, the interview subjects, um, or all of them, at some point in their careers worked at or studied at places that were primarily comprised of white people. And as such, they had to bring to work or to school a different version of themselves that was more comforting to white people. And that sort of switch between who you are, uh, I would say, in, in, in many places in your life, um, when you're around family, when you're around black friends, when you're by yourself, and who you are when you are in spaces that are run and owned and occupied by white people, that sort of switch going back and forth between those two identities is what we're acknowledging as, as duality. And for some people, there are three or four or five or seven or ten identities that, you know, they're switching between to make space for and to comfort um, the racial power dynamic. And that sort of switching between identities, um, while it does, you know, allow people to occupy different spaces that they might otherwise be invited to, it comes at a cost, and as Ed Bailey calls it in the first chapter of the book, um, that cost for him has been, you know, therapy twice a week uh, in his adult life to help him cope with the 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 pain, you know, the um, mm-hmm. the discomfort of having yeah. to put on a mask every day. Well, one of the things they, well, some of them talk about is compartmentalizing. Have you had to compartmentalize in your life, and um, what? how did you do it? Like, how did you compartmentalize? I did. Uh, when I started my career, I started working at Google right after college, and uh, I really wanted to have a long and ascending career there. I wanted to you know, make my way all the way up to the C-suite. That was my dream, if I'm being honest. I wanted to be one of the big bosses there. And mm-hmm. I saw as soon as I got to that company just how white it was and how uh, whiteness, you know, entered every social interaction in, in one way or another, whether it was the preferences of music taste, food taste, travel taste that people expressed. Uh, the language that they used, the mannerisms that they used, the, 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 the clothing that people wore, you know, I saw it in every corner and crevice of that com- company. And mm-hmm. when I looked up to the leadership suite, when I saw the chief executive officer, the co-founders, the chief operating officer, these were all white people. The, most of the yeah. shareholders were white people. And I thought, if I want to get there, I have to act like a white person. And so... I began to compartmentalize who I actually was, which was a young black man, 
And I would leave that person at home before I left the door, you know, before I walked out the door and I would go put on, I would, I would put on my white self, you know, and that was the compartmentalizing that I would do. Now, when you're, when you were a kid, um, you had a story in there talking about your dad following the bus, the school bus. Can you tell the audience why he was doing it? Yeah, sure. So when I was growing up, we moved from uh, a more diverse neighborhood closer to Washington, D.C. Um, we lived in a townhouse. I would say most of our neighbors were a variety of black, white, Latin, um, Asian, uh, Middle Eastern, Indian, just people from all over. And we moved to a cul-de-sac neighborhood, single-family houses, um, that were mostly occupied by white folks. And I think for my dad, he saw uh, a danger, you know, in our new surrounding. He saw that I was going to be seen as a little black boy, as potentially someone who could be a threat, could be dangerous, um, or it was just not valuable to the people that we lived around. And Mm -hmm. so he became very protective and very defensive of my sister and I um, in a, from a physical aspect. You know, he would follow our school buses to school to make sure that they were going there and that they were that we were arriving there safely. And there were other rules, too. I mean, he would not really let us go play in the white kids' houses. He would, yeah. um, you know, not really let them play in our house. He was very strict about time, the time that we could spend outside and not going in other people's backyards and there was a laundry list of rules um, for us in that new neighborhood. And I think that the underlying sort of point of emphasis was he just wanted us to be safe. Um, And when I got older and I saw what happened to Trayvon Martin in his own neighborhood, um, it made sense. It clicked. You know, I, I, I got it. And even though I think my dad might have overdone it in my own childhood, I understood the fear that he was living with for his kids. It's a hypervigilance, which, um, uh, well, I think Leticia, uh, one, one of the interviewees, she talks about um, being hyper-aware to protect yourself um, and, and constantly being able to, to read people, I think, some of, the, some of the words that were used. And that's something that um, white people, white children may not be aware that black children and children of color are doing, you know, even at a young age, oh, yeah. like you're doing, how much space as a black child am I taking up, you know, and, and not to, oh, yeah. to shake the, the boat, you know. But that's also, yeah. um, I'm going to bring out my social work hat, it's like that could, uh, could be a symptom of PTSD. You know, mm, um, people yeah. who have PTSD are, are constantly hypervigilant, being aware, so almost on the verge sometimes going to, into OCD. But what I want to mm. express is this is a burden that many African-Americans, and people of color are caring and that yep. white people don't have to worry about. They're not, they don't have that burden. So, so this brings me to now the magic part. How did you develop your magic? How did you flip the script and, and not develop high blood pressure, you know, over the situation? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, so what I eventually became and what I do now was um, I'm a writer and uh, an artist, you know, and and I work in a creative field, but there's still so much business in creative fields. So it's not like I abandoned that part of my life altogether. But 
I'll tell you, I mean, the real answer, how did I realize, you know, we, we all develop our black magic along the way through all of these trying experiences. Um, it's mm-hmm. more so a matter of when did I acknowledge that I had these gifts? And the way that it happened for me was uh, it was a surrender. You know, I gave up. I gave up at Google trying to fit the sort of corporate cookie cutter mold of what does a young tech executive look and act like? You know, I had tried so hard to look like um, or or talk like or behave like some kind of little Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs type of clone, and it just wasn't working out for me. It's not who I am. You know, if you look at a picture of me, um, I thought I put on a pretty good uh, a, a pretty good facade of it, but if you talk to me for two minutes, you can tell, oh, well, this guy's kind of got a little southern accent here, and he went to Morehouse, and he likes hip-hop. He doesn't really like folk music, and, you know, he likes to eat pancakes and fried chicken and waffles. He doesn't really love to, <laughs> you know, I don't know, drink IPA beers. So um, I, it was just such a strain for me putting on this act, and when I gave up, you know, it's not worth it um, for me to, to try to be somebody else every day at work. I need to show up as myself. Uh, then I started to have some real career victories. Um, you know, I, I was a little bit bolder. I was a little bit more brash. I was much more honest when people offended me. And I asked questions that I thought that I otherwise might have found to be dumb questions. You know, I just kind of, I just came to work plain. And um, it helped me. You know, I became a better employee. I eventually left Google to go help build a tech startup. And when I was done with that, I decided I wanted to be a writer. And now that I was being myself again, now that I was like fully in my body, um, or or more fully, you know, I think I'm still learning to be fully myself, but um, it really helped me a lot in my work. One of the things I liked, um, it was one of the interviewees talking about connecting with people at moments of fun. Um, I thought that was a really good point because when people are laughing and having fun, they're a little more relaxed. Um, Do you think that is something that young people can use? Do you agree with that um, option? Was it ever an option for you to connect with people during moments of fun? Yes and no. Um, okay. I think that black people uh, in big corporations, you know, we always, as, as the um, saying goes, you always got to stay one drink behind your boss. Uh, you mm. always want to stay one, one drink behind your, your white colleagues because when people start letting their hair down and they start talking about things that they generally would stay away from in the actual office. When people start talking yes. about da- dating preferences and political affiliations and religion, and um, they start maybe using words a little bit differently, they start telling jokes differently that they might not at the office, that can be a dangerous place to be socially as a black person. Because if you say the wrong thing, or, if, or even worse, if someone says the wrong thing to you and then they yeah. realize later and they feel embarrassed <clears throat> the wrong thing. or they, mm-hmm. yeah, or they feel like they might be in danger of being reported to HR, you start representing that embarrassment to them and you look like a mm. threat to them and you look like someone that they might want to get rid of at this company. And so then you're up against 
it, it then becomes your word against theirs. And that is the danger of, I would say, meeting people in those social places. Now, on the other side of that, I am a personable person. Um, I do like to get to know people on a real level and not just their corporate facade. And it has helped me in one-on-one situations to get to know people as they actually are and get to know what their interests are and get to know what they what they're passionate about and how they have fun and what irks them. And I do think that black people have to become exceptional listeners just to survive. So we do have an ability to make people feel comfortable and to learn from them and to learn about them. And if you can find ways to do that, that do not put you at risk of becoming that person who was told something in a sloppy moment, um, then I do encourage it. Yeah, you have a whole chapter about the N-word and yeah. your friend Brett. You, you want to tell us a little bit about Brett? <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, Brett is a fake name that I use to cover up uh, the real name of the friend who did this, but mm. I'll tell you about Brett. Um, I, you know, I've ha- I have had white friends my entire life. I grew up in a very diverse place. Um, I would say most of the people in my life are black, but I do have white friends. And at that point in my life, my mid to late 20s, um, I had this friend named Brett who I had met at work. And I was entering his world a lot more often than he would enter mine. But we, we would go back and forth. And on mm-hmm. this particular night, um, he invited me to a party in Crown Heights out in Brooklyn, which is like one of the kind of young hipster gentrifying neighborhoods um, in, in Brooklyn. And I went and I hung out with, you know, me, him, and a bunch of white, you know, white people in their early mid-20s. And at some point, the song Niggas in Paris came on the radio, and Brett jumped right out there, and he says, you know, oh, I think Niggas in Paris is the best song of the year. And it is that moment that I think so many black people have experienced where a white person throws the N-word out and I had to decide, you know, I had to make a million different calculations in a heartbeat and decide how do I want to respond to this? Do I want to put, you know, am I going to fight him? Am I going to say nothing? Am I going to laugh to make him comfortable? Am I going Mm -hmm. to object in an intellectual way, you know, and it's like, it's all these different parts of my body are kind of being um, considered, you know, it's, does this live in my yeah. head? Does this live in my spirit? Does it live in my heart? You know, so what, what is happening here? And that's all in an instant. And what I decided was to tell him, you know, sort of intellectually, uh, don't say that. Like you, you don't need to say that. That's not a word for you to say. And mm-hmm. he decided to spar with me on that as a truth, you know, oh, well, it's the name of the song. And if they didn't want white people to say it, they shouldn't have named it that. And this word is, doesn't mean what it once meant. You know, every, we've all heard all every lazy, tired argument for why white people should be able to say the N word. And at the end of that, I just left the party and um, I left Brett's life. And I don't know that, I mean, we might've had a couple of texts back and forth after that, but I don't think we ever hung out again. And, the reason really is because if if that if something that small that one word 
if he wasn't willing to leave that on the doorstep for the sake of our friendship, then I couldn't imagine how many other ways he was going to disrespect me throughout the course of our friendship um, on a racial level. And that was a simple choice to make, if I'm honest. It was hard, you know, it was hard in that it always, it, there's always a mourning when you leave a friendship, but, um, yeah, right. but I knew, I knew, I knew instantly. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I, when I was younger and I quote unquote, I guess, um, this is a story. So I had a white friend and she went and went across the country and did mushrooms and all, you know, this, this, I would hate to say stereotypical, but white thing, black people weren't going across the country doing mushrooms and stuff like that in the Grand Canyon. But, um, and then I ended up going into college and, you know, I came into my blackness, I will say, and I um, ended up being like the president of the African-American Student Union and, you know, just being more politically aware of things and, and active. And I remember talking to her at a later date and time, you know, years later, and we were just talking about how we kind of separated and she was like, oh, yeah, you know, you were doing, like, your black thing. And I said, I said, what? Mm. I said, I said I'm, I've always been black. Like, I'm, I'm, like, that, like, was my moment of, like, huh? So what did you think mm. I was before? Mm-hmm. What did you think I was before? I, I was always black. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't do your thing because I wasn't into drugs. Like, <laughs> just, you know. Yeah. So we could flip the script and say, you know, we kind of separate because you went into drugs. Um, but we were able to talk about it, you know, and I, it reminded me of uh, Elaine. I think it was her story when her girlfriend at the party, the sleepover, said something about get your nigger to do it. Is that, was that Elaine's yes. story? Yeah. Yep. Um, That's right. And that was a hard jarring moment, you know, of like, hello, I'm, I'm here, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. Well, we only have a couple minutes left. I'm glad you talked. I brought up Elaine because, um, you talk with people who are, um, you know, mixed and their story. Mm-hmm. Tell us just real, a little bit about their battles and how they got into their magic, if you will. Yeah, and, and so I think there you're, you're specifically talking about, like, the biracial black folks in the book. And um, there are, uh, I want to say there's two of them. There's Elaine Welteroth and there's Brian Shields, who is, uh, a man who grew up with a black father and a Filipino mother. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think for for them, and, and I don't want to speak for them, but they speak for themselves in the book, you know, it, it, it seems like what they're dealing with is uh, the conflict of identity early on, which is that whether or not you have, uh, even if you have a parent who is of a different race, um, in this country, you are going to be perceived as a black person uh, if you have really any amount of, like, sort of visible blackness It's the one drop you. rule. Uh, yeah, one Yeah, drop. exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, um, and I, you know, I think both of them, as their stories read, you know, I think both of them embraced that blackness that they had. Um, but even still, as people who had at least one parent who was a different race, um, it exposed them to white people and other races in a different way than than the rest of us, I would say. And I I think it can probably be confusing um, to have access to white people in certain ways 
but at the same time still be treated um, racist in, in ways that are yeah, racist. You're and the like you said, in a, yeah, you're the, exactly. And, um, you know, for both of them, I think they came to grips early on with their blackness and they, and they came to embrace their blackness early on. Um, but over the course of years, you know, I think they were able to use that other piece of identity to sort of slip in and out of white spaces um, a little more fluidly. And they eventually really, really owned that ability to their advantage and, and, and used it to help other black people from what I could tell. Well, I think this is a great book. I was telling you earlier that we should um, give these to young people. You also mentioned about baby boomers. Um, and I think um, all those in between can benefit from reading the book and probably just going, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, same thing happened to me while you're reading, you know. Yep. I think one of the big superpowers is um, the networks that these people had of black people that, you know, reached back or reached sideways and supported one another. I think that's a big black magic that um, we have is in supporting one another going through, you know, difficult times. So, Chad, I want to thank you for writing a book, and I want to thank you for coming on the show this morning. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And um, I hope that, you know, our paths will cross again soon, and, I, and I'm really grateful for your championing of the book. Well, I'm going to give away some copies. So tell your friends. they got to follow me Love on it. social media. All right? So I you will. have a great weekend. Eat some pancakes. <laughs> thank you. Do the same. Okay, All bye-bye. Right. And good luck to your daughter as well. Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. And on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Stay tuned. We're going to be talking about multiple sclerosis in a few seconds. Thank you so much. With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.